So you had all this going on, and then you think the boys are safe, don't you? So you think Stephen's safe and all the other boys were safe. Well, they wasn't. Stephen was told in those uncertain terms by his father that he would have to have sex with his mother by the age of 17. In the event, uh, anyway, his parents evicted him at the age of the age of 16. I think he would have been gone, but that was what was going to happen. By the age of 17, he would have had to have slept and have sexual relations with his mother. Although these girls were repulsed by their father's behaviour, um, I think, you know, it's like anything, isn't it? You know, when you, you have an abuser and, and you know, the, all these children ever knew was them, this was their parental guidance, this was their parental protection, wasn't it? You know, they didn't know anything else. That's all they've been brought up with all their life. Of course, they're going to love them. They know nothing else. You know, no matter what you do to a child, a child will always try and love you because they're innocent. It's really a shocking thing, really. It really is. So as this time went on in 1985-1986 time, you know, Heather's now leaving school and um, getting older and this abuse and stuff, and you know, they're going to try and stop you getting him getting to you, but it's not working all the time. And I think in um, the autobiography, um, it talks about Heather and the effects on it affected her really quite badly. She couldn't really take it. She was trying to find a job or, or, or get away from the home. I think it was a living cleaner at camp, some campsite or something. She was so excited to get this job. And when the letter come through, said she didn't get it. I think it really broke her. I think it really broke her down. And by 1986, I think Heather had been forced to engage in intercourse with her father. And had, had, by the 1980s, I mean, she was developing classic syndromes already of distress. Um, that she had felt of this child abuse and this included habits and she would sit and she'd bite her nails until right down until they would bleed she would rock in the chair she was um, so traumatized by her childhood by the events of her childhood by the life of that she could not escape there was no one to help her she had tried to tell hadn't she but the person then even though he's probably thought he was doing the right thing by questioning the parents they did nothing else, no one followed it up. You have this girl now being raped and abused by these people, by this man, put down, can't get a job by this stage, her mental health is gone. She's really in a terrible state. And then one day, she's gone. So on the 19th of June, this morning, as the other kids have gone to school, Heather was sitting there and they say it's her usual self. She was looking very miserable, biting her nails and just sitting on the couch, bouncing back and forth as she sat, you know, because she'd just been through all this abuse and everything. She hadn't got this job and stuff like that. She was a bit depressed, but she was back to her normal self, they said, and things were going along. So when Heather's siblings returned home, they were informed that Heather had left She'd got this job and she'd gone. She's accepted that job, there was a mistake, she's accepted this job and she's gone and off she'd gone. And they was like, oh, you know, um, they couldn't believe another another one that had just gone and not said goodbye, but they thought, oh, well, she's gone for this job. And as the months and months went on, and then I think all the neighbours inquired, you know, um, what's what's happened to Heather? And she said, oh, we've had this hell of a row and uh, she's left home, That she, you know, she's run away from home. Nothing about the job. So there was different stories going around, even about Heather. And really, that morning, they had murdered Heather. So as you can imagine, these kids are like, 
Well, she hasn't contacted she's got this job. And they said, well, listen, she can't, can she? Can she? Because she's gone off with her lesbian lover. You know, uh, and, you know, they couldn't believe it. And so Heather said, well, you know, I think May said, we're going to have to report it to the police then because we haven't heard from them. They said, no, no, you can't do that because she's also going to be charged again, you know, because she's done benefit fraud. There's lots of fraud going on, so you can't mention anything. And, of course, these kids believe her. I think it was credit card fraud, I think they said she did. Um, so, again, it was that one more occasion that this Fred and Rosie, you know, persuaded, again, these people, you know, and also they made fake phone calls um, from Heather to the house and speaking to her, you know, and, and you think they've done all this knowing that this child is in this garden under the patio, literally. These kids, I think, didn't realise at first, or they may have thought, and then they thought, oh, well, she's on the phone, she's talking. As the years have gone on, they knew. They knew because they were threatened with it. Now, if you do, don't do as you're told or do this, you're going under the patio. So about a year after, I think she was murdered. Um, I think Rose got Fred to do a barbecue at the other end of the garden, you know, right opposite where she was buried. And then they put this bench and everything um, right on where she was buried on her grave, where all these kids would be sitting and playing and joking. And that's what they did. They were so sadistic even in that. They knew where she was buried because he remembered everywhere and every part of that garden, every part of them burial sites. He remembered. But to place the table where these kids sit and play on their grave and then threaten them kids if you start, you know, burying your under patio, but then laughing like it's not true. You know, oh, it's just a joke. But no one's ever heard from Heather again. So we can add her to the list for all the others, really, because these people just seem to get away with it for a very, very long time. A very long time. So in May of 1992, Fred asked his then 13-year-old daughter, Louise, to bring him a bottle or some bottles to his room and this room is on the first floor of the home now rose was not present in this home at that time shortly after that the girl siblings heard her screaming no don't um later fred returned downstairs and louise was found by her siblings in terrible pain, in terrible, terrible pain, sobbing that her father had raped her and sodomised her. Uh, and at one stage um, tried to potentially strangle her. It, you know, it's terrible, isn't it, really? That you think this poor girl, 13 year old, the others had tried to protect herself from him and this and other. As these kids then started right reaching, and I always say this about paedophiles, at this certain age, this child was 13, and he raped and sodomised her at 13, and she was screaming. When Rose returned home, Louise confided in her mother, you know, you would, you're 13, she's thinking, my God, I'm going to tell mum, she's told her mum, you know, she's been raped, you know, um, by dad, and, and Rose just replied, oh well, you must have asked for it. There is no fault. She probably knew it was going to happen. That's probably why she went out. She probably knew it. It's just, this case gets worse and worse and worse as we go through it, I think.
over the following weeks again Louise was raped a free further occasions and Rose personally witnessed one of these rapes before um, following her distressed and bleeding daughter to the bathroom and asking the child well what do you expect it's terrible really this I mean I'm telling you this man is a sadistic they're both sadistic they're both sadistic sexual predators it's terrible so uh, actually Fred also filmed one of these rapes of these girls several weeks later Louise um, um, she confided in a close friend and the father of, and just sort of told everything about what the father had done I think she was so distraught that she couldn't hold it in and the friend again told her mother what happened on the 4th of, of August of that year I think in response the, the mother didn't go to Fred or anything they made an anonymous phone call to the police and sort of said about um, things about rape and different things that have been going and going on in this house. So I think it was the 6th of August 1992 uh, that the police searched the West household on the pretext of searching it for stolen goods. So they had all this information but they didn't want them to know that they were there for that. It was about stolen goods. So there was some, you know, numerous ob sexual objects, you know, and paraphernalia laying about 99 pornographic videos and um, they was also both homemade and commercial nature were discovered. Um, um, but they did not find the video um, of the rape of Fred's daughter. They didn't find that video at all. So the 13-year-old did make a false statement through a specialist training, uh, trained solicitor describing her father's actions. Um, and the sexual abuse had begun when she was 11, that's what they said, it was a slow build up to the actual penetration side of it. And that her mother had been um, <laughs> really indifferent about it, about her plight, she didn't care, she knew it was going on, she'd actually been there and watched it and, you know, was actually quite focused on um, having her raped and encouraging the rape. Um, the, all the children in the household were placed in, um, in at that time in foster care the following day. Medical examinations revealed evidence of physical and sexual abuse. The West children were um, also did divulge that most of the, the injuries to them were inflicted, most of the physical and some of the free, you know, most of them said it was Rose that did most of the physical abuse stuff as well as the mental abuse stuff that was going on uh, and they then said about how they kept saying that Heather was buried under the patio and so this then is what made people think because as they then started to investigate well where are they you know so please scan this full cell investigation into the leading up to um, Fred being charged with three counts of rape and one count of buggery um, with Rose as this accomplice because that's what this child has said. She was also charged with child cruelty, incitement, her husband to engage with sex with, with, with their daughter and obstructing the police. Fred and Rose were questioned um, as to the whereabouts of the, of the eldest daughter uh, and also um, Fred claimed that Heather was alive. You see, he kept saying she's alive and well and, was, and she's supporting herself as a prostitute because everyone as a prostitute. Um, Rose initially claimed that she had no knowledge of Heather's whereabouts 
and that she had um, le had just left home. So not that she had gone off to get this job, not that they'd had a row beforehand and she had gone off. Now she has no claim to knowing anything about what happened to Heather. She claims that on the 11th of August that she could remember now that her daughter and her her daughter had left home um, of her own persuasion due to um, Rose's concerns and the other children that discover that Heather supposed um, supported lesbian feelings. Now, Rose, you know this is a lie because Rose is um, bisexual herself and she would have no problem with this. She even sleeps with her own children, so she wouldn't have any problem with this. So we know that's a lie. We know she didn't get the job. We know that they, they was putting it all together. And then Rose adds, oh, you know, I threw her um, £600 as an incentive to leave the household. Um, you know, there was just a lot of this story that really didn't make any sense and it, it just wasn't added up. So then you have the kids saying, well, she's rung up. You know, they spoke to her on the phone. Every now and again, she rings up but we've never seen her, we can't speak to her. So when they questioned this, of course said, yes, you know, um, yeah, she she had rung, um, you know, <laughs> she had rung, she was, she's doing all right, she rings occasionally, I spoke to her on the phone occasionally, uh, and this was um, said, you know, about his daughter had been doing over these years. Now the following day, Rose was granted bail on the condition that she did not maintain contact with any of her children or stepchildren or her husband prior to the suffer and coming um, trial. Now, as Fred awaited trial, he was held on remand at Birmingham. And I think this is a lot of issues with Birmingham. Well, not as much issues, but it comes into it a bit later on. So learning that her father had been uh, denied, uh, he denied any wrongdoing, I think she, I think, um, you know, they think that he was going to admit it. No, he wasn't. Anne-Marie also contacted the police and offered a full statement detail in her own experience as a child because I think by this stage these kids are getting older and they've had enough and, and they can see now this, is, this needs to stop, really does, needs to stop. Anne-Marie also added that there had been several years um, that she had been looking for her and they'd been unsuccessful in attempting to trace her or her mother, uh, Rena, and her half-sister, Charmaine, and Heather. All three of these now people were missing. Further inquiries conducted, I think, as Heavenry's husband, Chris Davis, reveals that Heather um, had confided um, in him just how unhappy she was uh, before she disappeared and a desire to leave home. So Davis um, elaborated that although Heather did not divulge any details about her enduring any sexual abuse, they did, he wasn't told that, that he had been so concerned with her welfare because of her mental state and, and, and stuff, that he had confronted Fred and Rose and Heather had uh, dissuaded him from doing that. He was wanted to talk to them and say, listen, what's going on? Because this girl looks so ill. And um, Heather said, for Christ's sake, don't do it or else they kill us both. And she would have absolutely been right. They would have killed both. So in an effort really to gain more evidence, I think the police and the social services, they also took to, uh, talked to May and spoke to, to her about things. Um, and they was also speaking to 13-year-old sister Louise. And, it, and um, you know, you've got to think, this is their only father and mother they know. They've now been taken into care. 
the only normal what their normal is because that is their life it's been taken away um and they really didn't want to see their father charged with it i don't think it's it's a strange thing isn't it you know abuse really when you have kids you know that are still trying to fight for these people even after all they've done to these kids it's amazing really it's just amazing really so um pleased with them forced really um they really focus their attention i think on tracing heather in the efforts that she would collaborate you know with Anne-Marie's claims of sexual abuse and inquiries in land revenue and social services and social security and the department they held no records at all there was no records of anything no bank accounts no nothing no doctors no hospitals no nothing visits nothing at all you know and really when there's no record really testing to her being alive at all then the only thing is that she's dead and so they then knew that they were now looking for a body. So two, two months later, uh, Gloucestershire Social Service also um, contacted the police and said, listen, we have lots of stress. You know, we're wearing stress and, about the whereabouts of Heather. Where was issues with Heather? The school have said when she was there, they had issues with Heather. They felt that her mental health wasn't right. They felt that something wasn't right. <clears throat> and all of a sudden, this young girl's disappeared and no one knows where she is. So I think it was very difficult because at the same time you had this case against West, you know, Fred West for the rape and the assault of, of the girls sort of collapsing a little bit um, when um, Anne-Marie and her 13-year-old sister Louise uh, declined to testify in court because I think the fear, if you're going to do that and you're going to go to court, this man's got off so many times, hasn't he? so many times really and they know it they know how dangerous this man is they've witnessed it they've lived with him all their life and so in june in, in june i think 1970 in 1993 um with a child rape um expressing her desire actually to return to the home and Anne marie choosing you know to withdraw her statement because there was yeah there was nothing really, there's nothing else, there was nothing to back her up, it's going to be her word against his, and again there was no this physical evidence, it was very difficult. And the, really they was more fearful of Rose. Rose, this vindictive, sadistic woman, who was out, wasn't she? Wasn't really Fred, I don't think they were worried about so much. He was in prison, you know, he may have gone out. It was Rose they were worried about. They were worried about if they prosecute him and she's still out because she will be then what because she'll kill you quicker than he would and they knew that so although the Wests were acquitted of all these charges all their younger children remained in foster care um, they were permitted supervised contact or visitation to Cromwell Street, so the people had to go with them to visit. They weren't allowed to go on their own. So this was also despite Fred and um, Rose claiming that few relatives from whom they were not already estranged, because not many people liked them anyway, in 1993, that the changes had been fabricated by police. All these charges, you know, against them, this is all the police. They, because they couldn't get them on the rape or on everything else, they're now just throwing everything at them. They're now going to go for and throw the book at them. They're trying to say to people, listen, we didn't do this. 
it's the police. They don't like us. And they really thought that was going to work because I think you'll notice with Rose, when she doesn't get her own way, she can become very, very aggressive and uh, mouthy is the word, you know, and um, she would be screaming at these police and he'd be screaming at these police, you know, and they'd be telling people about their issues with the police because they've done nothing wrong. This is all about the police and all about the police trying to fit them up because they couldn't get them for that, we're gonna get you for all this. So the police weren't having none of it and they didn't care anyway. Um, they, you know, they were continuing to go and investigate this disappearance of Heather because there was no records that assisted them to say that she was alive. There was nothing, nothing. So really, when you've got someone now that's missing and you've got a father saying, I've buried under in the patio, or I've done this or I've done that, you have to investigate it. It took years to get to this point and there was no way the police were going to give up now. Listen, we've had all this investigation going. Then they come across these names, you see, of, don't they, because you know, now the child is looking for her real mother, Rini. She's now looking for her sister. Charmaine. But, so please check it out. They say, hang on a minute, there is no missing persons for either of these. You know, there's nothing, which was very strange. So no one's reported a missing, no one's done anything. You know, no one had ever filled out one for either of them. A small child and this woman just disappeared off the face of the earth. So this DV, DC Savage and her colleagues were convinced that Heather was dead and they were right, weren't they? And that Fred had repeatedly uh, stated that to his children that his body, again, was beneath this patio, and they believed that that's probably the truth, because I usually say with criminals, there's some truth in some of it, not in a lot of it. But you know, when they tell you a story, when they're telling you their story, there's some truth in something. It may not all be with the truth, and you don't know what part it is, but in this part, you know, where he's saying and continually threatening these kids about burying them under the patio. I think it was, you know, the police had to be really on it then because really they knew she was dead. There's nothing on them they knew. So on the 23rd of February 1994, Gloucestershire Police successfully, uh, successfully applied for the search warrant authorising the search of 25 Cromwell Street. Um, to locate Heather's remains and really that's what it said on the warrant because you have to have a reason why and their reason why was to look for remains of this dead child. When police displayed the warrant to Rose at tw on the 24th of February she turned pal on the doorstep really before becoming hysterical and shouting over her shoulder to her son get Fred now, Fred at that point was working away, I think, um, a little bit away. And um, so they had to ring around and try and get him home. But at this time, you had Rose becoming really contradictory with her information, questioning as to the circumstances around Heather's disappearance. She then became a bit confused because now what's on her mind is, hang on a minute, they're about to dig up this garden. Now, you know, at the time, they only thought there was one remains under there. This is why these people are now worried. And so she continues then to get distraught and abusive and then shouting to others, I can't fucking remember. It's my, it's a bloody long time ago. What do you think I am? A bloody computer. 
because Rose <laughs> West is very verbal. She's aggressively verbal. She's an aggressive person anyway. But when she can't get her own way, or things ain't going her own way, this is how she gets. She would be in your face, screaming at you, threatening you. This is what she's like. And really, I think with at this point, in Rose's mind, she's thinking, the game's up. Really. Now, they didn't arrest her then, they didn't arrest him then. He's now come home because they are, now it's getting late. They've, you know, they're starting to dig, aren't they? They've got everything around. They're not going to leave this home unattended. These people are still in this home, but they have got guards now where they're about to dig and then police will stand there all night because you then can't remove anything. But what it did do by giving them that time was let them have their own little alibis together. And it was very you know, well known because the, the son was in the house at the time and it said that this evening when, you know, the day before the dig was going to start and the police now are outside watching this garden, you ain't going near it, you can't move anything now from this garden. They were whispering to each other and colluding with each other, Fred and Rose. And I think it was about him taking all the blame because he did love her. And I think she was in control. And I think if anyone thinks that Rose West wasn't in control, you're wrong. It wasn't Fred in control. It was Rose. So Rose wanted to remain out. And Rose would have continued to kill whether Fred was there or not. He just made it a bit easier, I think. He was just a willing to participant, the same as she was. But if one of them had gone to prison, the other one hadn't, the killings would not have stopped. So I think this is what was going on this evening before they got um, really arrested the next day, really before this dig of this garden started. This is what's going on. The plan was hatched. Now, this is it. This is what happened. I knew nothing. And that's what Rose West has said and would always say. So about three hours later, you know, when he arrived home, of course he was distraught Fred because he knew the game was up. Um, he had also said, I think, to police about that Heather had been, you know, alive and well, but she was involved with a drug cartel and, and that he claims that his wife has made Heather, you know, um, of being buried in the garden was just simply rubbish. You know, you don't even need to look there thinking that these police, as he's explaining this stuff to the police, are, are just going to take his word for it and say, okay, and go away. That wasn't going to be the case. So... In these early hours of the following morning, just before this dig's about to start, Fred and Rose West's son, Stephen, was about to leave for work and Fred informed him, look son, look after mum and sell the house. I've done something really bad. I want you to go to the papers and make as much money as you can. That's what he told his son. Shortly thereafter, the police returned to Cromwell Street and continued their search for Heather's body. Upon their arrival, Fred indicated that he wished to be arrested for Heather's murder and he was taken to the police station um, and provided a full confession um, when he was arrested and formally cautioned. Now, he fought by giving himself up and telling them exactly where the body was. 
but they would only dig there. And then I think, you know, if they only dig there, they're not going to find anything else. So at 11.15 that morning, Fred formally admitted to police that he had indeed killed his daughter, um, but he also said it was manslaughter. He confessed um, to strangling Heather in this fit of rage because this is what he wanted, you know, it's manslaughter and that's what he wants to say. He dismembered her body um, and then um, buried her, you know, next to the bathroom window under the thing and built the patio on top of her. Uh, he said he also cut her up by using the knife that he was also used to cut his frozen meat. Her remains had been stored in a dustbin, um, he says, as he was waiting for the opportunity to dig her grave. So Fred was insistent that his wife had nothing to do with it, Rage West had nothing to do with it. He said that, he, you know, she didn't do it and that she was, you know, you know, preoccupied with one of her clients and it was just a row and he had murdered her and then chopped her up and placed her in a bin before he then placed her in, buried her in the garden. And he also tried to tell the officers, listen, you're looking and you're digging in the wrong place. It's there, that's where the body is. That's where the body is. So he wanted the searchers to only dig there. Well, they weren't having none of it, but they did decide then to dig all that and then that part, and then they did find um, her body. So, okay, so he's told them where this body is. Now, then you have to think, is that, He's done this confession, but remember I've said to you that he's quite illiterate, Fred West. He came across, he needed, he came across as quite a simpleton, I think. Really, I don't think he was, but he came across as it. And maybe some things he needed assistance with. But anyway, he had a solicitor and um, I think that was Howard uh, Alton. And then he was appointed an appropriate adult and that was Janet Leach. And uh, she informed May and Stephen that their father had confessed to their sister's murder. In response, Stephen slumped against the wall and then literally began sobbing. And May entered a state of shock. And, and really, they, you know, I don't, I don't, I think they knew it, or, or they was hoping that it wasn't true. You know, when you, 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 you don't want something to be true so much. And then I think when it was finally told and that that he had admitted doing it, I think it just really really um, broke these kids, really. You know, even more than they had done throughout their life, really. So the following day on the 26th of February, police began excavating the section of Garden in Cromwell Street, um, where Fred had indicated that the, um, he had borrowed, uh, buried the body. So I think shortly after 4 p.m., the police found human uh, thigh bone protruding from the section of the ground. Um, and he insisted that police need not look in certain other areas, but they did. I think they found three thigh bones in that area and then decided, well, hang on a minute, because human beings don't have three thigh bones, we only have like two. So they knew there was other bodies there and there was a mass of these jumbled body remains uh, and they were entwined in rope and encased, you know, in, in, in stuff. And this is when all the horror of what really was happening was coming out. Again, there was um, the fingernails. There was a pile of fingernails separated from the body. Well, when you die and even when you, um, you know, decompose and stuff, your fingernails still grow and they're usually still attached to you. No, not these fingernails. And it looks like part of their torture was was to pull out the fingernails of their thick ends um, as part of their torture. 
Um, you know, really, it's bad, really. But anyway, several hours later, the body was identified by dental records, and, and it was Heather West. Um, that was one of the body parts or bodies that were found. So having been formally charged with his daughter's murder and questioned, um, then the police also discovered that there was a third thigh bone, as I said, and Fred confessed that there was two further uh, sets of remains in the garden, and where he returned to Cromwell Street again um, to reveal the location of the rest of the bodies um, of these graves. And it was the graves were um, Shirley Robinson, who was described as being a former tenant and a lesbian again, um, who had been heavily pregnant with a child at the time, and her murder was in 1978. And Shirley's mate, they said the other victim was, but he would not reveal the name of this person. He just wouldn't. Um, and he would not elaborate at any further than that. It was just her mate. So this person was still not identified. Uh, I think until this day, this person really hasn't been identified, not that I know of. But, you know, he just, I mean, who was it? What made this person different from her? And again, you know, no, no remains of the fetus of um, Shirley at all. No remains at all. So both, the, both sets of remains were discovered, I think, on the 20, 28th of February, and Fred was charged with both murders two days later. Having discovered three sets of human remains in the garden, um, the decision was made to thoroughly search the entire property, and Rose was placed into a safe house in a nearby, nearby town. Uh, and the police again then set, really done a full search then on the inside of 25 Cromwell Street. Informed of this fact and a formal interview um, conducted, the investigating team, I think it was about 16 hours of total investigation um, of questioning, really. And this included persistent questions about the whereabouts of his ex-wife or his first wife, Rena, and also and his stepdaughter, um, Charmaine. So Fred authorised his solicitor to pass a note, a handwritten note, um, to the lead investigator and the superintendent, John um, Bennett um, of Gloucestershire Police. And the note read that it was dated the 4th of March and it read, I, I Frederick West, um, authorised my solicitor, Howard Ogden, to advise Superintendent Bennett that I wish to admit a further approximately nine killings, expressly Charmaine, Rena, Linda Goff, and others to be identified. F. West, that's what he said. So question further as to his claims, Fred calmly explained that there were a further five bodies uh, in his cellar and six bodies beneath the ground on the bar, and the sixth body was beneath the ground in the bathroom. Initially, Fred claimed that most of these victims would would was killed because they was going to inform Rose, you know, of his infidelity with these women, and that he had transported the bodies then back to Cromwell Street uh, to abuse, dismember, and then bury, bury in shallow graves. So when they asked about this dismemberment of all these bodies, I mean, he claimed that it made it easier to bury the remains in shallow, you know, cubicle graves, 
Um, and he agreed to return to, again, Cromwell Street and indicate precisely where he had buried each victim, because as I said to you before, no matter where he buries them, he remembers. He knows exactly where everybody is buried. However, they're the bodies that we know that we've had now. Well, these are, you know, pre the bodies that he took to his grave, because I think he was going to release like one a year or whatever. So anyway, between the 5th and the 8th of March, police um, found six bodies, um, young females on 25 Cromwell Street. Each victim had been extensively mutilated. Each body bore evidence of having been subjected to extreme sexual abuse prior to the murder. Extreme. For example, the third set of remains discovered in the cellar were found with a length of cloth wrapped around the skull and an oval or an adhesive um, tape of 16 inches um, in a circular found. So we know that <coughs> part of the torture with his and her victims was that they would first wrap this cloth round the heads of the victims. They would then insert tubes into the nasal thing. They would then wrap and then um, bind them in this surgical tape. So the only way these people could breathe, they couldn't see anything, they couldn't hear anything really. All they could do is breathe through these two straw-like um, nasal cavity prods that they put in. And really when they wanted you to die, they would just take them out, wouldn't they? Cover the hole. It's a shocking death and it's a shocking torture because as you're being tortured in other ways, this is how you are covered. You can't scream. You can't see anything. You know, it, it's, it must have been the most terrible death for these victims. The most terrible death. So let's talk about this arrest of Rose, really. Despite Fred's, inst you know, really saying he's adamant, isn't he, that his wife had no knowledge of any of these murders. Investigators uh, suspected otherwise, and they were right, actually. Rose was arrested on the 20th of April, 1994, initially on offences relating to the rape of the 11-year-old um, girl and a physical assault of an eight-year-old boy. Now, there's other charges and things with these, but this is what they've got her on so far. And this physical assault, you know, this eight-year-old, um, and I think it dated back to the 1970s, there, so they'd come up with any old charge really to get these people because they knew once they got her, they needed then to be able to get proof that really she was in and on this. So the following day, she was refused bail and then was transferred to Puckle Church Prison and was held on, in the maximum security wing. Um, she was questioned more closely about the murders, in particular those of the daughter of Heather and Linda Goff on the 25th of April, and she was formally charged with Goff's murder. On the 6th of May, Fred and Rose were jointly charged with five counts of murder, and Rose, um, with Rose really re just simply replying, I'm innocent. That's all she ever said throughout the thing. I mean, he spoke, no way was she speaking. That was it, I'm innocent, or no comment. That was all you'd ever get from Rose. So as well as these murders, wasn't it, of these victims, you know, and they've exhumed from um, Cromwell Street, 
Fred had confessed to the murders of the wife and the stepdaughter and to knowing the location now of Anne McFall's uh, remains, although he really denied killing her, you see, which is unusual. Um, Fred agreed that he would identify each burial location and that the remains were um, unearthed, I think, on the 10th of April and on June the 7th. So then you see, this is when he was transferred. So he was transferred to Birmingham prison and it was HM Birmingham. And, and, and I've said before, people like Fred West that you know could kill themselves. They're waiting to go to trial. They know there's enough evidence. Now you've got the bodies. They know, they know what's going to happen to them. You have to go on a suicide watch because you don't want them killing themselves before you've actually got all the information out of them ready and you want them to serve prison. You want justice to be served, isn't this? It's the whole point of the trial. So he was put on suicide watch again for, you know, for, for every check, 15 minutes, I think they check 10, 15 minutes, uh, just do their rounds and stuff. Enough time where if you're going to try and hang yourself, you, you, you can be revived and you're probably going to survive it. So after these few months, you know, it laxed off a little bit, I think, really. So Fred and Rose were then brought before the magistrate's court in Gloucester on the 30th of June, 1994. And he was charged with 11 murders and she was charged with nine. So really, this was the first time that Fred and Rose had seen each other since the day that Fred had walked out of his house, said, yes, I'm guilty, arrest me because I've buried my daughter here, here. So you ain't got to dig anywhere else, just dig there. And um, assumed that that would be it, would be out. You know, Rose would be fine, she'd be safe because I'm going to say it's all me. So this is the first time now they've seen each other from that day and remember that evening before where Rose was colluding with him and they was talking about what they was going to do and this is what the son has sort of said with them they were whispering to each other so we now know this is what's happened he's gone and he's talked to everything it's not Rose it's not Rose it's not Rose because he loves Rose doesn't he and Rose loves him well she doesn't love him that much because as they've gone into this court together he is ecstatic to see her because he loves her he slowly comes to put his arm, his hand on her shoulder. She pulls away. He's like, hang on a minute, why are you, you know, why are you pulling away? You're in a courtroom anyway, but as far as Fred's concerned, that doesn't matter. What matters now is that Rose doesn't want to know him. Rose now isn't interested because she's saying, I don't want anything to do with you, you're a murderer. Actually, she said, he murdered my daughter. He murdered my daughter. And so she winched. And, and really, it just really, from that day, Fred knew he was on his own. For the first time in many, many years, she turned on him. Because to save herself, because that's what Rose West is all about, always has been about, is herself. Self-gratification torture, murder, anything, beast, anything. It's always been about Rose. Children, they can be raped, they can be abused. Let me watch it, let me film it, let me sell that film, let me sell my child. Because <laughs> that's what she was doing when she was putting that girl in prostitution at 13 years old. I don't know what Fred really thought. I think he thought she loved him. Well, she didn't because Rose wouldn't love anyone. So by this stage now, he knows. 
And as he's walking out of court, he's still saying, Rose, you know, he's telling her, I love you. She doesn't want to know. And from this day, from that day, sorry, she never has. That was it. He's done, he's no good, he's over. He's done. He's done. And I think what this did to Fred is that he would have confessed and confessed and confessed and we would have found out a lot from Fred West, a lot from Fred West about what had gone on, really, because he wanted to talk. He wanted to talk and I think this is why he had this real um, relationship, I think, with his appropriate adult. And I don't mean a relationship in that way. I think he trusted her. He could tell her things which she couldn't really say because she, she couldn't really say after he died. She's only there really to help him. But after she signed, he died, to see anything he said to her wouldn't be privileged information anymore, would it? So on this day, you know, I think it was the 1st, wasn't it, of January, when Fred West decided to take his own life because of the rejection, the rejection from Rose. This man would have spent all his life in prison. It wouldn't have bothered him to spend in prison, really. It was only because he wanted to see Rose but that he really couldn't do it. And that's the whole reason he killed himself. It was not about anything else. He didn't kill himself because he didn't want to go to prison. He didn't kill himself because he felt guilty for what he'd done, murdering his children or whatever. He killed himself because Rose left him. That's the only reason, really, and it's a quite a shame, really, you know, that he did, because really, you know, this case will never really be satisfied, would it, really, because she's never going to admit anything, even though there's overwhelming evidence against her and there has been from day one, really. So I think after all this feeling down and he's seen her in court and then he's gone back to his cell, then he's been rearrested, because now they've you know, they've arrested him on suspicion of murdering Anne McFall, whose body had been found, I think, on the 7th of June, and had been officially identified, I think, and she, I don't think she was officially identified until the 3rd of July. And, and he appeared in court the following morning again with uh, another charge on that. So as this man's sitting in his cell and he's getting more and more depressed and he now knows that she doesn't want him, actually, she's, you know, um, refusing to even write letters because he wrote her letters daily and she refused to answer any letters. She refused, uh, refused to speak to him in court. I think it was leaked to the press that she was now playing the role of this, you know, <laughs> devastated mother who had lost her daughter and what a monster he was and all this and that, that she was innocent of everything. And I don't think he ever realised when he was saying or planning this all out after, you know, in that night, you know, you take all the blame. What she was actually going to do and say, because you can't say, I didn't know someone murdered my daughter and all this, but then have a relationship with them, see them, you know, it's, it's suspicious, isn't it? So I don't know, I think, I think he's very, he is very slow, and I, I, think, I think that's the nicest way I can put it, really. Um, and he believed, I think, everything she said, without a doubt. He really believed it. And But the thing is, it didn't matter, did it, really? Because they were both going to be in prison for a very long time, really. But Rose really is totally different from Fred. 
Fred couldn't help but talk. I think the only people that visited um, Fred in prison was again um, Stephen, his son, and Anne Marie. They were the only children ever that visited their father while he was on remand. And really all he wanted to talk about, all Fred wanted to talk about, was he wanted them to convey this message to Rose that he loved her. Yeah, he loved her, he missed her, but she would never, ever acknowledge anything, even from them kids. She wasn't interested in him. He'd been used and that was him done. So this uh, initial strict suicide watch, you know, had been relaxed, of course, on the 1st of January, he'd been in there a long time. And uh, again, as I said before, earlier in the start of this, he asphyxiated himself and... Um, uh, by wrapping, you know, this uh, this rape sort of thing, he got hold of it. He constructed it out from the laundry in different places where he got stuff and his blankets and tags and things he'd stole from laundries and everything to make up. So he'd been planning this a long time. This wasn't quick. I think he probably started planning it from the day after the um, in the magistrate's course court where Rose just wasn't interested in him at all. And I think that's probably where he thought, this is it, I'm, I'm going to end it. Because as far as he's concerned, Rose was all he was living for. So yes, you can be a killer and a serial killer on one end, but you can actually need love and try and keep hold of someone that is also a serial killer. You know, <laughs> really, it's, it's strange, isn't it? But with Rose, there was none of that, absolutely no emotion at all. No emotion at all. So at the bottom of the suicide note, um, it was found in his cell, there was a drawing of a gravestone. And in it he wrote, in loving memory, Fred West, Rose West, rest in peace. <laughs> Where no shadow falls, in perfect peace he awaits for Rose, his wife. That was it. No sorry about all the murders. No sorry about the abuse, the trauma, the stuff that these called. That was it. That was it. That was his suicide note. Again, let's go to this trial now because he's now dead. So now what's going to happen? And this is the thing, you know, what's going to happen now when someone dies and you're halfway through proceeding. So anyway, at the um, pre-trial proceedings in February, Rose pleaded not guilty, again, of course she did, to all 10 charges of murder of Charmaine West having been added to the original um, list of nine, which they was going through the, you know, the first bit. So Rose went to trial on the 3rd of October. Of October. Uh, an important early decision, though, that was made by the judge and to admit testimony relating to her sexual... Um, mistreatment of three young women by Fred and Rose, accepting that the prosecution's argument that it established a pattern of behaviour repeated in the murders. You see, when I think it's when she was, they were abusing Owen, the survivor, is it Caroline Owen, the survivor, they bound her, they bound her face, they bound her, you know, and Again, she's lucky to have survived. They also beat her, raped her, tortured her. Um, she got away. And I think this is what they're trying to say, is that this the trial of her, there's so much 
there is not circumstantial evidence it's evidence really because even though this you know she tries to say she didn't do it what she was doing in her daily life of, of abusing people and some people that got away and just her daily life with her the way that she portrayed her life and done things with with other people in 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 you know sexual encounters she was already doing them sort of things so she just then took the next step over to where she'd done it in that and that's how they got her i think on that plus other things so in this opening statement and the prosecutor brian Leveson portrayed rose and fred west as this just you know sex obsessed it's sadistic murdering uh murderers you know they are you know determined the the bodies described, you know, and discovered at Cromwell Street um, and also in Midland Road. You know, and probably more terrible than words can even express, really. The victim's last moment on this earth, he said, were sub were on a subject that, that, you know, the depravity, really, of this woman and her husband were so bad, it's, it's undescribable, I can't describe to you everything in here because it's, it's um, shocking, it's shocking enough with what I'm talking about, but when you think, you know, these, they tortured these people, they tortured them really terribly, they, you know, it's just shocking really, and I think the judge, when you look at all this evidence, I think the judge was right in what he, he said, just animals, really, and he pointed out where Fred was um, incarcerated when Charmaine um, West was killed and claimed that Fred and Rose um, had each learned from their own mistakes and allowing Caroline Owens to live. Um, they would never be so trustful again and this is why after Caroline Owens got away and really they knew it was nearly over for them is that that's why they killed the rest of them anyway. That's, really that's what people are assuming. And they said that this, uh, you know, there was this gag on this victim you know and uh, it was um it was just terrible really the way that they had gagged them bound them and when she'd used the scarf and you know it was her that used the scarf she would tie the scarf round and then tie a bow in it well that's not a male thing to do is it she's thinking these bodies will never be found she's putting a mark on these bodies the last bit of power she has over them is to tie this bow around these people to kill them, suffocate them into a bow and really that's what done it for her plus that Fred West was in prison when Charmaine was murdered the prosecution witnesses included Cromwell Street Lodgers um, the victims, relatives um, Rose's uh, mother Daisy and sister Glynis, uh, surviving victims including Anne-Marie West, Catherine Halliday, a former lover of Fro uh, Fred and Rose, Caroline Owens and a Miss A who had been sexually assaulted at 14 by Fred and Rose in 1977. So Miss A described Rose as a more aggressive predator of the two. This was a 14 year old who had been abused by the two of them. Neighbours described Charmaine's in 1971 disappearance while Fred was in prison and Rose casually 
indifference to Heather's disappearance as well. So Owens did admit, or Caroline Owens did admit, um, receiving £20,000 uh, for her story and, and you know, described her survivor's guilt. It said, you know, she states, I, I only want to get justice for the girls uh, who didn't make it. I feel like it's my fault because she feels that she didn't tell at that, well she did tell at that time, but I think with Caroline Owens is that, you know, I think she may have done the right thing because if they'd lost, then what? If she had lost it, and there's no guarantee that they would have gone, done anything about that really. They'd done a lot of other stuff and no one had reported anything. I think she tried. I think Caroline, Caroline Owens tried. She tried her best, but as a victim, a victim is sometimes so difficult to come forward and, and be under the prosecution, really. Could have ripped you to pieces, aren't they? I mean, he'd already took his children back, hadn't he, from Rena. He'd already took her to court because she stole something from his house. He was willing to fight. This man and his couple would have fought her and who's to say that she would have, you know, won? It would have been too traumatic for her. So I think, yes, I think she survived and she's very lucky to survive because I don't think there's anyone else that had that was that close to Rose and Fred West like that and in that position that would have survived. So she's probably one of the most luckiest women alive. And I suppose then you've got the defence, you know, of course you have, the defence have their job to do and they're going to say that Fred was the murderer before he met Rose. Yes, he was. Absolutely he was. He was the murderer and probably done many, many murders with or without Rose. No one's, no one's saying any different to that. But I think by trying to say that Rose had nothing to do with it, that was the downfall of their case because really it was proven really, um, especially with um, Charmaine, that, you know, on the, the matching of the teeth and the timing of the neighbours saying and at the time he was in prison, that was a downfall, you see. If it wasn't for Charmaine, the rest may have been circumstantial evidence. Or I think if it wasn't for the evidence, I think of their children also saying what she was like and also Caroline Owen, you could have said circumstantial evidence. This case was a very safe case from the beginning, I think, whether Fred was alive or dead. The difference with Fred being dead Except now we don't know the full story because Rose will never ever going to tell you anything. So I think as we look at Rose and she was, you know, she said she was unaware of, you know, Fred's, you know, sadism and his urges, you know, and his prejudices and all this stuff. She was unaware. No, she wasn't unaware at all. There was no way this woman was unaware of anything that, that Fred done. Fred done exactly as he was told to do. And really, you know, <laughs> I think, I think, when she testified, and I mean, listen, you wouldn't have wanted this woman to testify if you as her counsel, because you, you really wouldn't, you know, because of knowing her uh, anger and knowing her reactions to when, because this woman thinks she's right all the time. She, you know, you know, if you're not going to listen and believe her, then she's going to lose it on you. And I think this is what the, the prosecution were hoping for, really. But really, you know, she was uh, <laughs> she was really told not to go on the stand, but she did. She did, and really testified herself. And you know, sometimes there was some remorse shown. Sometimes there was tears shown, fake ones. 
Sometimes there was this upbeat humour. You know, she she was just like this. Um, you know, so why she's on the stand? She's wept while describing um, herself as a victim of child abuse. Okay, that's right, and of rape. And she said she naively married a violent and domineering man. Well, she was only very young. She was 15 when she met him. That even could be true. Right, it could. But then she goes from that to joking about issues such as she's always been pregnant and then laughs while describing one's victim's glasses are like uh, grandfather glasses. Oh, you know, you know, she had, uh, you know, grandfather glasses on. I mean, <laughs> she also claimed that she'd never met six of the victims that are buried in Cromwell Street. And she recalls very little, actually, about the, result, the assault on Caroline Owens. See, if she doesn't want to talk about it, she's not going to know it. If you know nothing about the victim, how would you know about the glasses? And why would them glasses stick in your mind? You're on the stand, you've just finished talking about yourself as a victim. Then you go to laughing about a victim. She's a very strange woman, a very dangerous woman. So then I think as they finally winding up this case, because they want to know everything about this case, as, as we did really, don't we? We want to know about them. So as you know, she's being questioned and they, they sort of ask about her life at Cromwell Street. What was your life like? And she said, oh no, me and Fred, we live separate lives. You know, we, you know, I, I, we just done our own thing. We was never really together. I mean, it was total lies, really. So many inconsistencies and stuff. You know, um, you know she said, you know, he just said to had visits or he lodged at the address. No, he, he never did that. And, you know, I think the thing is with Rose is that what she thought might get her off. Because this is what she usually worked with people like Fred West, where they believe what she's saying. She could get herself out of it. But she couldn't do that here. This is a court of law. You've got a lot of people listening now to every word you're saying. They're analysing it with the evidence that they have against you. And it's not adding up at all. So let's get to the final witness of the prosecution. And this is the um, appropriate adult. Okay, This was Fred West's appropriate adult when he was arrested before he committed suicide in prison. And her name was Janet Leach. And again, as I said, they formed this relationship, this trust relationship, and when he was alive, she said nothing about what he had said to her in these interviews or about anything else. But once he is dead, what he said was then, open information, isn't it really? She's allowed to say it. And, you know, luckily, really, I think she did, because a lot of the information, not always you can believe that what Fred West says. Not always. Um, because he mixes stuff up and, you know, he's like, I'm going to give you this body, I'm done that. And sometimes you may think, I think to, to one he said 15 bodies and to another one he said 20. So it's, it's difficult. But I think he did have a relationship with this Janice um, Leach where she, where she, he believed that he could give her information that she was on his side and she was on his side. She was there to make sure only literally that 
you know, the process was right and correct, really, in that his rights were, that's all she was there for. She wasn't really there for anything else. Um, and I think this relationship really helped get an understanding about Fred West. You know, she gives you an understanding of what this man was really like. And because he was much more open with her, so like on the 7th of November, um, in rebuttal, I think, to the tape recording of Fred's confession, which he had uh, had been played to the court on the 3rd of November, in, in which he had stated that Rose had had nothing to do with any of the murders at all. And, and so it had to be rebutted. And I think Lynch was the testified that um, through her role as with Fred, he um, gradually began, you know, to view her as his confidant, really, and had um, confided in her that he had, um, I think he had even on the, I think it was on the 25th of February um, of the arrest, that he said that he and Rose had formed a pact whereby they would take, he would take full responsibility for all the murders, and many of which he had previously described to her as being some of Rose's mistakes. Now remember I said to you earlier, when Rose makes mistakes, and I think some of these murders were mistakes. I think, what I think Rose done after Caroline Owen was never allowed there to be another mistake. And I think the judge was right when he said this. And, you know, I think, did she always go out to plan to kill? Probably, probably. I don't think she might have told Fred they were her mistakes or you know, she died mistake. Uh, but I actually think, no, she planned to kill most of these people very, very early on. So I think the other thing that um, she divulged, Lynch divulged, was that Rold, uh, Rose had indeed murdered um, Charmaine. Fred had told her that as well. And he'd also, because he said he was incarcerated and he wasn't there and she'd come to see him the day before and the next day Charmaine was murdered by Rose. And then she, he also said that she had also murdered uh, Shirley Robson, the woman that was pregnant, another woman that was pregnant and that she felt was a threat to her family. She felt that because he was in this relationship with her and he, she was having his child, um, that there was a threat to that relationship and she had to go and he says that she killed Shirley Robinson as well. Fred also um, confided that he had dismembered the victims um, and Rose had participated in the muti mutilation and dismemberment of Shirley Robinson, having personally removed from her womb after death. So with um, reference to the remaining eight murders, I think, after that, in which Rose was charged. Lynch did testify that Fred had conf confided that Rose had played a major part in all these murders. Now, upon, you know, this cross-examination, because Lynch, like everyone else is going to go into court, will have to be cross-examined. Now, she was only um, you know, there to assist him um, with certain things. And yes, there was a relationship formed there where he would trust her. 
and stuff and there are certain things that she could not say to the police that the police then to investigate not for her to say what he said to her was confidential until he died then she could say it and so there was this he did feel comfortable with her because that for that reason he thought he could talk to her anyway okay so that's the relationship there now also i think um i think lynch did concede to richard ferguson that she had earlier lied under oath and about having sold her story to a national newspaper um now she did and she sold it for about ten thousand pounds although she admitted that you know her testimony was sincere but the, the problem is is you know you could sell your story after couldn't you to put at risk and you are putting at risk if you take money like that up front from from anyone about um a crime really because it's hard then isn't it or more difficult not that i'm saying that she's lying because i don't think she is but i think for any jury to take you seriously uh it's very difficult when you've been paid a hundred thousand pounds before you've given your evidence in court and i think that's why the the defense really went for her with that one i think yeah, she she you know she I think she had to return. I think she was absolutely, I think she collapsed in trial and it was adjourned for about six days. She was very unwell. I think this case had took it out of her. I think working with someone and when you're, and I always say to people, you know, when you're working with um, criminals and you're hearing all this stuff, you know, it's not easy to listen to, is it? She's sitting there. She's, you know, he's, you know, <laughs> the adult that's meant to be sitting there listening to all this stuff for this, this man. But this man's done this crime. This man's a psychopath. This man's a killer. He's raped, murdered kids, you know, God knows what else this man's done, and it's all coming out. And you have a lay person then sitting down there, this appropriate adult, sitting there having to listen to all this stuff. It's enough, isn't it? To when you get home, what are you thinking of? It's, it's you know, lawyers are well used to it, people are well used to it. You learn how to block it out. But for layman's, it's not so easy. And this went on for a long time, and 16, 17 hours at a time, these people were being interviewed for, or he was. And the stuff that he came out with um, in the interviews that she had had to listen to and the places she'd had to go, and when they were digging up the bodies, always pointing out the bodies, she's there, she's with him. She's there. She's seeing it all. And it's a very difficult thing. You know, I think she deserves 100,000. Fair enough. But my issue is if you're going to take £100,000 for a story, you do it after the trial. Because if you did it before the trial, you could jeopardise that trial. Um, luckily, there was a lot of more evidence here against Ray's West, West than um, what was needed. So anyway, the conviction after seven weeks of evidence and the judge instructed the jury to emphasise on the circumstance, um, circumstantial evidence, um, and that can be sufficient for finding the guilty, right, finding her guilty. And um, I think if two people take, I think, part in a murder, and this is what he said, and it's a really important part here, because it's a little bit like joint enterprise, I suppose. But if two people take part in a murder, whether you mean to kill that person or not, you're taking part in that murder, you're wrapping people up, you're putting tubes up their nose, you're, you're doing things to these people, you're torturing people, then the law must consider them as equally guilty as the other, regardless which one of them did the deed. 
So regardless of which one tied the last bit round and tied the bow in it, or removed the straws and held the nose, strangled, chopped up, pulled their nails out, what part killed them? When there's two or more, it doesn't really matter, does it? What one done it? They were both there. And so really, he's right, they were equally guilty. She was always going to be guilty, because she really was. So on the 21st and on the 22nd of November, the jury returned to unanimously guilty verdict for all 10 murders, um, terming her crimes as appalling and depraved, as we've said before. The judge sentenced um, Rosemary to life in prison and emphasised that she should never be paroled. She really shouldn't. Um, initially, Rose was incarcerated at HMB um, Bronzefield as Category A prisoner. Uh, she was later transferred to HM Prison, I mean, Low Newton, um, before to, in 2019 and being transferred to HM Prison, New Hall, um, where she continues to, to protest her innocence. Her victims, so Rose and um, Fred and Rose West, were known to have committed at least 12 murders between 1967 and 1987, many of those who um, connected to this case believe that there are many, many more, several more, really, other victims whose bodies may never have been found or never will be found. Prior to the suicide, police have recorded over 108 hours of tape recording interviewed with Fred. So this was in his little, you know, as he was doing the police interviews, 108 of them plus. Both of these is when he claimed that he was um, alone in the commission of these murders and then when he changed his mind after Rose then literally in, in the um, magistrate's court literally blanked him and refused to do anything that's when he then changed his story and um, attempted to portray Rose as being much more or as much as capable um, or culpable participant as he was. So on several occasions Fred made like cryptic clues really, he did little hints and things and that he claimed that there were several other victims, um, but he did refuse to divulge any further information. Beyond that, that he had murdered a 15-year-old uh, Mary um, Basham um, in 1968, and he buried her body on farmland near Bishop's Cleeve. So he was killing early on. He also claimed that he had killed I think one victim while working on a construction project in Birmingham and there were other bodies that had been buried in Scotland and in Herefordshire. To his appropriate adult, Fred claimed that there were up to 20 um, further victims and he and his wife had killed, so between them, 20. Uh, not in one place but spread around. He also intended to reveal the location of one body per year to the investigators. So while on remand, Fred made several um, admissions as to the fate of the victims buried in Cromwell Street to his son Stephen. Much of the information was disjointed or told in a third party sort of way really, or this manner that he had, it was all, it was a you know, I don't. I think he was losing it a bit then as well. But it, it, as I say, with a lot of him, parts of it could be true, and it's trying to put them things together. So Fred did claim that he had extensive, um, he had extensively tortured 
um, the fixing victims prior to their murders, um, that he had not raped them, instead engaged in acts of necrophilia. So when the bodies were dead or shortly after the point of death, that's when then he would have sex with them after that. He actually said he didn't rape them when they was alive. He also claimed that the reason many bones had been missing from the victim's body was because he removed their fingers and toes. Um, it had been to form a form of torture, so he wasn't. He said he wasn't keeping the fingers and toes, or the nails, or whatever. He was cutting them off. But when we saw in a lot of the graves where you have piles of fingernails where they'd ripped out and left in with the grave, then fingers and toes were still gone. Yes, I do believe that the people that he murdered and tortured were probably their fingers and toes were cut off while they was alive. Absolutely, I believe him on that. But I actually believe that he kept them parts of them people and then victims as keepsakes, as memorabilia, because they had never found anywhere. He also said he had many, uh, many uh, forms of torture. He used to use cigarettes to burn them with and stab it out in their bodies. He had different acts of mutilation that he used to like to do. Um, you know, again, as I said, cutting, taking their nails off, extraction their nails, extracting their teeth, different sort of things. He liked the torture and so did Rose. Furthermore, the location of almost all the burial sites of the victims, um, both discovered and undiscovered, were symbolic to Fred. Okay, so we've got now to the end of this very long um, case. I think it's good to know it all, but I want to talk to you a little bit about the aftermath now. And when I say about aftermath, it's about what's happened after this sort of stuff. So Fred's body was cremated in Coventry on the 29th of March, 1995. The service was held and there were only four members, um, family members present. Um, it was a five minute service and there was no hymns or any songs used. His ashes were scattered and I've said this before about the Welsh seaside and um, his, I couldn't believe it when I read this. So his, his um, ashes were scattered on the Welsh seaside resort of Barry Island. I love Barry Island, I couldn't believe it. Uh, and uh, a location that he had regularly visited as both a child and as an adult with his family. Sorry, Barry Island, but he was there. After the 1994 arrests of their parents, um, the four youngest West children were between, I think, 1978 and 1983, were given new identities. Um, I think they had to do, and this had to be protected from the notoriety of this family. You don't want to, none of these children want to be really associated with this, really. And I think, and, and each child actually remained in, in um, foster care until that time when they were old enough to be released and helped out. The remains of um, Charmaine and Rena were cremated in Kettering and at the insistence actually of Amory West, mother and daughter were both, would share the same coffin, be together again really after all this time. There was no roses allowed, there was no one was allowed to bring any roses to that service um, by any of the mourners at all. So the, the mother and the daughter, Charmaine and Rena, 
were cremated together. As a direct result of the of her, you know, tenacity in this investigation um, of the West, uh, DC Hazel Savage was placed upon the annual New Year's honours list. Um, the following year that she was, um, I think, awarded an MBE, so good for her. This was a great investigation, actually, she didn't give up. Fred's younger brother, John, hanged himself in a garage in Gloucestershire home in November 1996. At the time of his suicide, he was awaiting a jury verdict for his trial for the alleged multiple rapes of his niece, Anna Marie at Cromwell, at Cromwell Street in 1970. In March 1996, Rose announced her intention to appeal her sentence, contending um, extensive press coverage had, you know, really tendered witness testimonies unreliable and there was no physical evidence existed um, to um, assist that she had participated in any of the murders and in the final instruction really delivered by the judge to the jury had been biased and in favour of the prosecution and that was undue weight was given to the fact that the evidence introduced for her trial on this appeal was rejected by Lord Chief Justice Taylor who commented really um, that Rose received a fair trial uh, and a <laughs> an efficient legal representation. So in July 1997, I think the Home Office Secretary Jack Straw uh, subjected Rose to a whole life tariff, eventually denying her any possibility of parole. So in 2004, one of the West's youngest children, Barry, claimed to have witnessed the murder of his sister, Heather. According to Barry, he was seven at the time, Fred and Rose had restrained and then sexually and physically abused Heather before Rose had repeatedly stamped upon her head until she ceased to move. The West House in Cromwell Street was demolished in October 1996 with every piece of the debris really destroyed and taken away and this was to discourage potential you know souvenir hunters and people really it, it, the house had to go. And it has been referred to in the press as the House of Horrors, and I think that's the only word that you can use for that home. It was a house of horrors. It wasn't just because people were murdered in there and what happened to them, people in there. It was them poor children that were live and brought up in that property. And the life of the survivors of this, oh, it's, it's shocking how these young kids and these kids have survived. It's shocking, really. Oh, it's amazing to me. Um, but yes, a house of horrors for many, many reasons, and it's not just about the murders of this house. Uh, in 1999, Anne-Marie West attempted suicide by drowning herself in the River Severn. Stephen West is also known to have made unsuccessful suicide attempts in 2002 by attempting to hang himself. In 2004, he was jailed for nine months for having unlawful sex with a 14-year-old girl on multiple occasions. The couple's younger son, Barry, committed suicide via suspected drug overdose in October, in October 2020. He is also known to have battled drug addiction and psychological or psychiatric issues, sorry, as a result of the abuse and the witness that he endured as a child. So, 
This has been the case of Fred and Rose West. It's a shocking case. Listen, Rose is never going to get out. I think Rose has had, she, when she was in prison, I think she's had affairs with Myra Hindley. Myra Hindley was um, in there, you know, for the Moors murderers and Rose had been in there. They had about a six week or a seven week, you know, love affair. Rose West and Myra Hindley. It didn't work out. They were both fighting, I think, in there for the attention. You know, the royalty of being one of the top murderers in there. Uh, and and um, in the end, so it didn't work out. And then Myra died anyway, and so Rose was still in there. I understand that Rose has now changed her name in 2020, end of 2020. There was a petition that she put in that she had paid £35. And, and she wanted to change her name now and that then would take her away from you know the memory of West and having her put with West. I know a lot of the people in her prison are not happy with that but it is going through but you know what whatever you call Rose West whatever name Rose West now wants to call herself because it is definitely a Christian name and a surname that's going to be changed so let's uh, let's see what it is but you know really Changing your name for Rose West isn't going to do much for Rose West. She's never going to come out. You know, I don't know, I don't think she'd last five minutes out here. I think the thing is with Rose West, she's a very hard woman. She's, I've said right from the beginning, no empathy, no care, no nothing. Rose's life is about Rose, only about Rose. Rose is a survivor. She really is. And if she ever gets out, she'll survive without a doubt. She wouldn't be worried about having her name changed. And this uh, having a name changed is not about what you think, you know, because no one's going to give this woman money to change her name and stuff because she isn't getting out. Her name change is about her own identity, how she wants to portray herself in there. Because Rose West does what Rose West wants to do. And another little thing about Rose West, I don't know if you know it, I don't actually watch it, Dancing on Ice, but I know many, many people do, I know my daughters do. Well, Rose West, you know, takes time out of her day, so I've read, or evening, in prison, to set aside a certain amount of time to watch that. Then also to make phone calls to people that contact her so she can vote on the people that she likes. So you know what? Rose West is doing all right, really. She really is. She's enjoying herself, changing her name, living her life. But her victims, her children, they're not, are they? When you have people that have been brought up like that, some trying to commit suicide and failing, some committing suicide, you know, what have you done? And yet you can sit in there and want to change your name, change your attitude, Make yourself apart from Fred West. Don't link me with Fred West. Oh, you're more than linked with Fred West. Really, I think <laughs> she's more than linked. She knows it, and we all know it. But I, you know, I feel sorry for her children. I wish their family all the best. Absolutely, I really do. And for her poor victims and their families, what a terrible, terrible outcome to have had all this really shocking so listen this has been the fred and rose west murder cases 
serial killers, house of horrors, rapists, murderers, torturers, whatever you want to call them. This has been their case. <clears throat> it's been a long one. It's probably going to be in three parts. So thank you for keeping with me for this one. Now listen, I have to get back to these 8,000 subscribers. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And you know what to do. Subscribe, subscribe, subscribe. No one's actually told me how to do the subscribe thing yet up here. You know, press the like button, do all you've got to do. You can follow us on Instagram and on Facebook. And you'll be able to in a couple of days or maybe a week or so when the others are put up. You'll be able to follow this on um, Spotify as well on Let's Have a Chat About Murder. So thank you, everybody. Thank you for everything. Really enjoyed this long video and there's two more I think trying to come out at the end of this month I think we're on the 29th now well I'm this I'm filming at night because I'm trying to have the office to myself so um listen great spring everyone it's spring in England the sun is out enjoy yourself we've had a slight little bit of the lift you know in our lockdown where we can see two people now or whatever it is in the garden Unfortunately, today wasn't my day because it's a day I chose to spend on my own. I didn't even know. So enjoy yourself. Keep safe. Thank you for watching. So until the next time, my partner's in crime. See ya.